Unpopular opinion, but unpopular opinion. Unpopular opinion. Unpopular opinion. Unpopular opinion. You're listening to Unpopular Opinion, a podcast for professionals from all walks of life who want to hear success stories from innovators who've won by taking the path less traveled. In each episode, recovering journalist and content marketer Ashley Amber Saba interviews individuals who have prospered thanks to their genuinely unpopular opinions, despite warnings from naysayers, threats to their careers, and colossal obstacles. All rebels are welcome. Welcome to Unpopular Opinion. I'm your host, Ashley Silva, and this episode is brought to you by my friends at Audience Ops. Audience Ops is a done-for-you, content-led growth agency that offers blog posts, content strategy, case studies, and full-service podcast production for professionals looking to launch a podcast like this one. Today, I'm joined by Meredith Metzger. She is the content marketing manager at Uconnect and a fellow ex-journalist. Meredith, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ashley. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, me and Meredith kind of go way back. We've been LinkedIn pals for a couple of years now. We have identical almost stories about transitioning from journalism to university content marketing and then just content marketing in general. So she's kind of been a good outlet for me to vent to over time. And I'm glad um, to have got to know her over the years. Yeah, likewise. It's the power of LinkedIn, right? How else would we have met and realized how similar our journeys were? It's kind of crazy how yeah, similar you don't, they are. There'd be no way for me to have met um, at the time the Idaho <laughs> twin with the two cats right? and everything too. <laughs> <laughs> uh. But um, today we're going to do this a little bit different uh, because we're going to talk about um, an ongoing issue. Um, the thing that Meredith has an unpopular opinion about is that the national media coverage of the quadruple homicide in Moscow, Idaho, has been sensationalist, harmful, insensitive. Can you kind of catch up the audience who might not know what's going on on the details of that incident and why it's so close to your heart? Sure. Well, first off, I kind of had to chuckle a little bit this morning when I was like looking at the topics of your other episodes. I'm like, oh, people are talking about unpopular opinions with marketing. And I'm like, murder. Like, let's <laughs> let's talk about that. Um, but anyway, thank you for that nice introduction. Um, a little bit of background. So I'm sure most of you have heard about the uh, quadruple homicides in Moscow, Idaho, that occurred on November 13th, early on a Sunday morning. They happened... Uh, at a house just off just off campus um, and involved the deaths of four University of Idaho students, all ages 20 or 21. So it was just a really, really shocking, awful incident. And at the time uh, those occurred, I was living in Moscow, Idaho. So I actually lived in Moscow for 13 years from 2009 till just recently, until December 1st, um, just a couple months ago. So it's the community of Moscow is extremely close to my heart. It was a very transformative place for me to get my degree, become an adult, like develop my career. I met my husband there, built a community there. And something like, like any homicide, much less a quadruple homicide, is just completely out of the norm for Moscow. Like I can count on literally one hand the number of murders that occurred before this. Um, in the 13 years that I lived there. So I just, I remember getting a text from my husband because he had, he graduated from the University of Idaho in May 
So he was still on what's called the Vandal Alert System, where they text students about any issues on campus or near campus. And he got this text saying that there was um, a homicide on King Road, please shelter in place, um, wait for more information. He forward, forwarded me that. And I'm kind of freaking out because our apartment, when we lived there last, was about a mile away from this house. And we were very familiar with the area where the homicide occurred because my husband's first apartment in Moscow was like literally right around the corner. So it's just, yeah, I just remember being like, what is going on? That is not common. And I, for weeks after was paranoid, like locking all of our doors, locking my car door. As soon as I get in the car, checking all the rooms, keeping the lights on because for a long time we had no, like we didn't know there was no suspect. There was clearly a killer on the loose and no one knew a whole lot. Um, so anyway, that's kind of a rambling answer to, uh, I guess my history with Moscow and kind of why this is so close to my heart. Um, anyway, I guess we can talk about the journalism side of it too, but as you mentioned, I am a former journalist transitioned into marketing, um, gosh, maybe eight years ago, eight or nine years ago now. Um, I was actually a journalist for a local paper in Moscow. So I was very familiar with the police department, with the city officials that were being interviewed with kind of how that whole process works. So that was just another element that really made it feel almost personal to me, if that makes sense. And I'm sure that you kept up with all of the local coverage of what was going on, especially because I'm sure that you still pick up the newspaper every day and follow everything going on in community journalism. But you mentioned that the coverage that they were providing on the national level was not that ethical. Could you kind of explain what was going on there? Sure. Um, well, I think I'm going to tell a story. So the kind of the first time I noticed this, this massive difference between how local and national reporters were covering the story. So being a former reporter, of course, I watched all of the press conferences that the, the police department um, and the, the university kind of partnered on um, to update the public. So I remember watching the live stream of the first press conference, and it's the end of the conference. The police chief says, thank you for being here, ends the conference. And all of a sudden, I can hear over the live stream people shouting at him and at the other police officers like, are you afraid the killer will strike again? And I'm going, what is that? Like, who said that? Like, and I just kind of had this gut feeling that there's no way any of the local reporters would do something that audacious and just frankly rude. <laughs> and it was confirmed later in a tweet by uh, an Idaho statesman reporter who said that national journalists were yelling questions at the police officers. And I'm like, ah, so I was correct on that assumption. <laughs> but I just... I was like, is this how it's going to go for the rest of the coverage? And I feel like it just got worse from there. Um, in terms of, in terms of ethics, like, I don't know how familiar the audience is with the society of professional journalists code of ethics. Like there is an actual code that guides journalists every like across the United States on how to ethically cover stories, especially ones like this, where they're very sensitive. There's several victims involved. There's families of victims involved. There's like, there's just a lot to consider and you have to balance that invasiveness with, you know, your duty as a journalist to inform the public. 
And so in terms of the national coverage, what I noticed was just a lot of sensationalism, like unnecessary sensationalism. Um, For example, early, like in the early days after the homicides occurred, uh, the mayor of Moscow, he honestly, he kind of made some poor statements. Like he was speculating a little bit on a motive, what, why this might have occurred. And he he said, maybe it was a crime of passion. Like any local reporter kind of knowing the mayor, understanding the context of the situation could understand this is a fairly new mayor. He probably never anticipated he was going to have to give statements about a quadruple homicide in his town, his small town. Um, But a lot of the national outlets took that phrase crime of passion and ran with it. Like the, the New York Times specifically ran that story. And that headline is still up. I I checked right before this. It's still up. And I just remember being really disappointed um, and very close to wanting to cancel my New York Times subscription because I was like, that's speculation. And of course, they could kind of get away with it because they quoted somebody saying that. Yeah. (sighs) I was like, really? That's that's the angle you're going to go with? So that was frustrating for me because it kind of put the mayor in a bad position. Yeah, again, like he's the one that said the words, but yeah, I mean, you weren't seeing the local and more regional journalists running with that angle. It was mostly the national outlets. So that was one example. And just, yeah, I mean, it's just continued since then. <laughs> Lots you of- and You and I, we left journalism when it was starting to become more of a, you have to get a click, a pay to click. Um, angle. Do you think that that might be playing into a lot of the sensationalism that's happening in national journalism because they feel like they need to get the hook to get the click to get the pay? What do you think is going on there? I think that's certainly part of it. Um, I think you can't really ignore kind of that business element. (laughs) Um, You know, newspapers and news outlets have to make money just like any other business. And so I think that's part of it. I also think that when you and I left journalism, social media was really starting to become a a major player. Like it wasn't as big when I left in early 2014, but since then it's become huge. Like that's the main way that a lot of news outlets are distributing their stories. And with that pressure of social media comes this like obsession with being first. I mean, that's always kind of been, you know, a thing in journalism is you want to, you want to break the story you want to be first. However, that doesn't excuse journalists from being as accurate as possible in that pursuit of being first. Um, so I think that has kind of played into it is that that pressure to be first, especially driven by like social media platforms like Twitter, for example, is where a lot of this is occurring. Um, and I do think that clicks in that pressure to try and drive more traffic to the website, which in turn drives more ad revenue. Um, I think that played into it as well. How do you feel the local media um, has done throughout this? Yeah, in general, I have been pleased and impressed by the coverage of local media. Um, with like one, with one exception, there was a reporter in Spokane. I think it was a, li- a live coverage of the vigil um, for the students at the victims at the University of Idaho. And the reporter said something along the lines of like the, she was commenting on the atmosphere and how everyone in attendance was worried that the murderer might be right next to them. It's like, 
that's irresponsible. That is pure speculation just to like drum up fear and drama. And so um, I was actually just talking with an old PR professor about that this morning. So it's, that's one example. But other than that, I have been generally pleased. And I think a big part of it is that a lot of the reporters in the state of Idaho or in like Eastern Washington, like the Spokane, Washington, Pullman, Washington areas, a lot of those reporters, they're very familiar with the University of Idaho in general. And a lot of them are actually alumni. So there's several reporters covering the story that graduated from the University of Idaho journalism program or the Washington State University journalism program. And so I think that really helps in terms of their understanding of the case, because you really need context for something like this. And that's what a lot of the national reporting is missing. Um, So I think, yeah, I think the local coverage benefited from having that additional knowledge, that context. A lot of them had existing relationships with the police, with the city officials, um, even with the state police as well. And so they just they just had more context, which in turn, I think makes it more accurate and fair coverage. I've never personally been out of um, local journalism. Oh, I've never been employed at a national outlet or anything like that. Every time I had a job in journalism, it was at a, in a community newspaper or even a community mm-hmm. magazine at one point. Oh, I, I know that it's, the dynamic is probably a little bit different, but one thing I didn't want to do was have to be that far away from the people that I would be interviewing. I think it is very important to have people locally there that do build those relationships so that you can get that context that you're talking about. And I think it's going to be difficult to replace otherwise. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think that is an important distinction because I'm the same way. Like I've only been a local reporter, so I don't, I can't put myself in the shoes of, you know, a New York times or a Fox news or a CNN reporter, but I feel like I still have the knowledge to kind of make fair criticisms, so to speak. (laughs) Yeah, no, I feel like in the past decade and maybe a little bit more journalism has had a difficult reputation because of things like that happening that are affecting people, the actual people behind it. We blow everything up and we make everything um, entertaining to the point where you're actually getting um, out of the way of people that maybe have actual feelings in these things like you. Like you mm-hmm. live there and it, it's going to hit you differently than it's going to hit anybody else hearing about it nationally. Yeah, for sure. And I, I can still like understand this, this balance again, between trying to inform the public, especially in the early days when clearly there was the person who did this was on the loose. And for the first several days, there wasn't a whole lot of information coming out of the police department. Um, so there was just a lot of like, uh, uncertainty and fear. And, and so I think you kind of have to balance that as a journalist, that kind of aggressive pursuit of information to inform the public while also, yeah, keeping in mind that these were four very real college students, like very real people. And I just realized I didn't, I didn't even say their names earlier. So that's my, my bad, but the, the victims were you know, Maddie Mogan, Kaylee Gonsalves, Santa Carnodal, and Ethan Chapin, all University of Idaho students, all very young people with a whole lot of life left in front of them. And so, yeah, again, it's just, it's a really difficult balance. And I, I remember watching this from the outside and thinking, I both want 
to be in the fray and be a journalist again because I feel that desire to serve my community. But I also am like, I also don't envy <laughs> some of the reporters trying to like figure out how to cover this ethically and fairly and accurately. I, that is, it's a, it's a, I thought about that too. Um, you actually messaged me that you, I did you post about it on LinkedIn, maybe that you thought you were thinking about yeah. journalism again, like the being in those shoes again and like what it was like. And I mean, I think I do that a lot now when I, especially when I don't think that things are accurately portrayed in the media, I think, well, that's, I would have done it differently. And then I think about, you know, what I could be doing things in the community better too. I don't know. I feel like you can't let that go. Like, that's the thing. That's why I call it like I'm a recovering journalist because I don't <laughs> think I can ever get out of that. Now I've, I've got so deeply ingrained in it that I feel like in my entire life, I'm going to be thinking about things in a journalism viewpoint. Um, even when I'm doing content, anything I'm doing, I, I can't help but put myself in the reporter's shoes. Yeah, same. And yeah, and as a, a community member, it's interesting to see how the coverage, both local and national, has affected the town of Moscow. Like the attention, I think, is more than, I mean, the attention was both good and bad. The attention helped keep the case front of mind and I think helped contribute more tips for the police, more resources. Um, in terms of funding, in terms of partnerships for the police to help solve the case. So that was good. But there's also been a lot of downsides. Like, for example, there's a, one restaurant in downtown Moscow called Mad Greek. It's a Greek restaurant. And two of the victims actually worked there, Zana and Maddie. And like, weirdly, it's a kind of a small town thing, but Zana was my server the last time I ate at Mad Greek, which I realized after her name was released. And I went and looked at my old receipt and I was like, oh my God, like I saw her just a couple months ago. It's just insane. Wow. But anyway, this restaurant has faced a lot of harassment and a lot of unwanted attention. Um, I was even hearing from a local there in Moscow that they were trying to call the restaurant to place a takeout order and they just could not get through. And so finally they went into the restaurant to place the order and they were saying they had to shut down their phone lines because they were just getting so many calls. And it's like, that just straight up sucks. Like that is a, a very real consequence of this huge amount of coverage and honestly kind of an inaccurate amount of coverage. So this was shortly after a couple of things happened. So People Magazine published a story about how the suspect ate in this restaurant where these two, two of the victims worked and it cited an anonymous source. And so based on that, and then everybody was calling the restaurant, all the like internet sleuths that have just been speculating on this case from day one, they were all trying to learn more. And, and so this poor local restaurant is just trying to like do business and they're trying to grieve the loss of two of their employees and restaff and they're trying to handle all of this amidst all of this unwanted attention. And yeah, this was also shortly after I think um, Nancy Grace showed up in Moscow, which oh yeah, major eye roll for me. Um, and she at one point was eating in Mad Greek and was like posting videos from inside the restaurant and pictures of this little memorial that was set up outside the restaurant. So I'm thinking like that probably didn't help. <laughs> I imagine not. What was the vibe 
I know you moved to Colorado not too long ago. What was the vibe like when you left? Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked that because it was very strange to move away in the middle of all of that, especially having lived in Moscow for 13 years. It was like I was leaving my family and my community in not a very good place. Um, and I just, I would describe the vibe as feeling very unsettled and on edge and just kind of quiet. And part of that was because students were on break. Like they had left for Thanksgiving break and had only recently returned. So it was just naturally quiet because of the cycle of a university. But yeah, I would just say unsettled, on edge, just, yeah, I think those are the two best phrases for it. And usually Moscow is a very much like a bustling, very friendly community. It's pretty small. Um, it has a very distinct downtown with a lot of great local businesses where people I mean, you're going you're to run into somebody, you know, basically anytime you go out. And so to have that feeling was just very, just very odd, very rare. We talked a little bit about your um, journalism background, but I thought maybe we could um, fill everybody in on what your transition from journalism into marketing has been like. Yeah, that was an, was an interesting transition because you come from I mean, there are a lot of similarities in terms of you're still writing a lot, you're still interviewing, you're still telling stories. Like there's those similarities, but it's also very different. Like I remember, I think it was my first week on the job at uh, Washington State University. I was working for their central marketing team as a writer and video producer. And <laughs> I'm sitting in this team meeting and someone asks me, or they turn to me and they go, I am, we're so sorry. We know it's short notice, but could you get us a draft of the story next week? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I could get you a draft of that story by the end of the day. <laughs> it's like, that's what I'm used to is this like daily cadence. Um, so that was kind of funny. Or the first time someone said, oh, can you just kind of fix up this person's quote a little bit? Oh my gosh. And I was like, too. excuse me? You want me to do what? Yeah, I got the, can you please um, doctor the quote of the um, the head of the finance department in the university or something like that? And I was like, doctor the quote? Like, how dare you? Yeah. <laughs> Just even like uh, me trying to get the Oxford comma taken out when I got there. Oh, see, I've become a full-on believer in the Oxford comma. I'm like, add it in add that comma. <laughs> I haven't let it go yet, but I've definitely had pushback. Um, there are people who love it and people who are on the fence about it. I don't know if there is as many Oxford comma haters out there as I expected, <laughs> maybe just because journalism makes you think that if you use that comma, that you are evil. But I mean, when all of your journalism assignments were covered in red ink, if you used them, like, yeah, um, you get, you get trained not to use that Oxford comma. Yeah. At one point, I don't think it mattered that much to me. And then at another point, it mattered a lot to me. And I honestly think that ink had a lot to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times. Um, but yeah, so in terms of that transition, I sometimes I miss journalism, but most often not. <laughs> I initially made the the switch because I I knew I still wanted to tell stories and work with people and do a lot of writing and video production, but I was honestly burnt out um, after a couple of years in journalism. So I worked a couple of years as like an intern in sports. I was the news clerk. So I did all the like 
obituaries and news briefs and calendars and all of that. And then I was a a full-time reporter and a business editor for a little over a year. So I caught a pretty good introduction to all of the beats that one could cover in a smaller town. And it was very validating and fulfilling, but I was exhausted. (laughs) You know, just especially I think in a small town paper and we had a skeleton staff, there were maybe three or four reporters covering two like big counties and two major universities in several school districts. And it just, it was a lot. It was a lot of pressure feeling like I was the only person who could cover Lataw County, um, which is the, for context, is the county that these homicides occurred in. Um, And I just, I was like, you know, looking ahead to what I want for the rest of my life and my career, I want more balance. I don't want to feel like I'm on call all the time. I don't want to feel paranoid every time I hear sirens going off thinking, oh no, what happened? Am I going to get a call? Where's my scanner? Like, yeah, um, I just, I knew I wanted more balance. Um, So that's what eventually led me to marketing. And I actually reached out to another journalist turned marketer who was also a University of Idaho grad. And I was like, hey, vandal to vandal, I'm looking to make the switch. (laughs) Do you have any advice? Do you have a job? (laughs) And so she eventually helped me get hired at Washington State. That's all you need is a good connection occasionally. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. I've used connections in like all but one of my jobs. So that's bet your other one true. was your I bet your other one was your personal brand. It was LinkedIn. Yes, it was. Uh, <laughs> I called it. Yeah. Um, you have quite the LinkedIn following too, which I attribute to a lot of the things that you've talked about actually in from going to journalism to content marketing. You had a lot of good content about that, especially earlier on in your posting that I think was actionable enough that it helped people actually make make the jump. The people that thought that maybe they wouldn't be able to get hired for that, but the skills are, as we both know, very transferable. Yes. I, I certainly hope it has helped some journalists make that jump. I, in fact, I just had a conversation with someone looking to make that transition yes or last week. So I know it's still very top of mind for a lot of folks and the skills are absolutely transferable. I think the challenge is just articulating how those skills transfer can be kind of a challenge. Um, so if any, if anyone listening is a journalist and wanting to make that transition, you just reach out to me or Ashley and we'll, uh, we'll hook you up. <laughs> yeah, everything that I did prepared me, I think for marketing. Um, interviewing, you have to talk to customers and case studies or um, just being able to actually condensely make fruitable content. A lot of people going into marketing haven't had a lot of that experience. Um, And I think that inverted pyramid and a lot of the other techniques that you use in journalism is applicable. Um, Mm -hmm. And being able to demonstrate how they're applicable to people hiring is what you have to do to make it like, like Meredith just said, make the jump. I think you got to connect mm-hmm. the dots for people. But I think once you're able to do that, then a lot of opportunities are going to be available to you. Oh, absolutely. I think anybody who has good communication skills is going to be just fine in this job market, in the future job market. Like that is, that is a skill that you cannot replicate in my opinion. You're often invited back to your alma mater, which is cool by the way, and quite an honor to talk to journalism students about um, how their degree can become other things, just like yours did. 
Um, what kind of advice do you give them when you talk to them? Oh, I love this question. And I love speaking to my alma mater. It's like one of my favorite things. I've got three classes I'm speaking to this semester. So I'm really looking forward to that. Um, so what I always, I do always tell them about the transferable transferability of their skills, um, specifically the interviewing piece. And that's interviewing off camera and on camera. Cause I think that on camera interviewing is a, is a skill in and of itself. It's very different than just, you know, interviewing for like a newspaper article, for example, there's just different considerations. Um, and then of course, writing ability, and that's the quality of the writing, also the speed that can come into play sometimes as well. And then of course the storytelling capability, and that sounds very nebulous, but I think it's it's harder than most people think to really be able to sniff out the best story, to sniff out the hook. And journalists, I mean, they have that in spades. It's literally what they're trained to do. And they do it every single day when they're a working journalist. And I think even in, in any marketing team for any kind of product, if you understand how to find the story that's going to get your audience's opinion, that is insanely valuable. Every company wants that. And so I, I think it's just a matter of, again, being able to articulate that and show that you have done that. Um, so I tell them that I'm like, you guys are getting trained to do journalism if you want to. If you ever don't want to, rest assured, you're going to be just fine. <laughs> so that's kind of the other thing is I just assure them, I'm like, you are getting a good degree. And I have said multiple times on my LinkedIn that I think journalism is one of the most valuable degrees that you can get because of those the versatility, the transferability of those skills. I think they, a lot of them are going to be very resilient to the changing workplace and the kind of future of work thing that everyone talks about. Um, so those are a few things. Of course, I love to tell them about LinkedIn and the value of building a personal brand. And so sometimes I'll give a little mini LinkedIn how-to uh, kind of spiel. So that's usually what I talk about. It's funny because back when, at least probably for you too, but when we went to school, they were like, you can make a LinkedIn profile, but you only use it to connect with people that you know. And then if you're looking for a job and now it's like, no, <laughs> you should be, you should be building your um, identity on LinkedIn, like all of the time and connect with yeah. people that you don't know, because that's how you grow. But everything that we got taught when I went to college um, is not what they're getting taught now, or hopefully not what they should be getting taught anymore. It's good that you're telling them that yeah. nobody told me. No, no one told me when I was, I think I set my LinkedIn up in like 2012 in a social media seminar class. That was definitely not what I was taught. I was same as you, like connect with people, you know, like, well, then that's, what's the point? It's basically like in-person networking. If you use LinkedIn, kind of like you and I are doing it right now, the whole world could potentially be your network. And that's insanely valuable. Like imagine, like this is what I tell the students. Imagine if you never had to apply for another job again. If instead jobs were coming to you, imagine how much better and more interesting that would make your work life. Imagine the opportunities that would present themselves that otherwise wouldn't have. The people you get to meet and learn from. Like, and get invited to things like 
podcast or whatever, anything, anything out there. Like I know people that built up their LinkedIn and now they're speakers at conferences and they get flown out there and they get to meet a whole bunch of people. And it's beneficial to them to do that, but it's beneficial to everybody else to like hear them. And they maybe wouldn't have had that outlet if people didn't find them that way. Like you got to put yourself out there. And I think that in my time, at least at university, that wasn't how they were explaining it. It was almost like, don't be too annoying. If you talk to people that don't know you, they're going to block you. Like it was almost like a fear (laughs) tactic. LinkedIn was like, you have to have one, but don't use it too much. And now, now it's completely like the tables have turned on that. Yeah. It's no longer just a virtual resume. Like it is a full on, like I say, your, your profile is like your resume and your posts are like your ongoing cover letter like and and not static because no. your resume is dead the minute you finish it because you've already accomplished another thing that's what i think about it like once you publish a resume like the next day you could have hit a huge goal and then that is outdated already and if you talk about what you're winning at and linkedin then it's completely evolving all the time oh yeah I'm like i don't even know the last time i updated my resume <laughs> But I updated my LinkedIn like last week. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> um, okay, we have a fun end of the show section where I've been asking guests to coming on to debunk an unpopular opinion that they have found on their feed. Would you like to go for that? Sure. So keeping in the theme with this whole conversation, I think one quote unquote unpopular opinion I keep seeing is... Um, People will say like unpopular opinion, you should hire journalists for a marketing team. It's not really unpopular anymore. I mean, you've been talking about it for a long time. I've been talking about it. John Benini has been talking about it. Like it is not a new concept to want to hire journalists for marketing teams. Um, so I would, yeah, I would debunk that one. And I would also just encourage more marketing team leaders to keep an open mind on that front and to hire like more that. journalists. Because definitely. as we talked about, they're val- they're definitely a value add for any marketing team. Where can people go if they want to connect with you and find out more? I know that your LinkedIn profile definitely you can find Meredith on LinkedIn. It's just Meredith Metzger. Um, and but do you probably have do you have any other web pages or um, social media platforms that you want people to go to check you out? Honestly, LinkedIn is probably the best one. Like I'm on Twitter, but most of the time it's just me tweeting about like University of Idaho football. So <laughs> I'm doing that with the Mizzou football too. <laughs> it's like totally, not, yeah, totally different Twitter. vibe on Twitter. Yeah, I um, haven't quite figured out Twitter yet. Uh, I, yeah, I have honestly haven't really used it that much since I was a reporter. So that was so. my, my peak of Twitter was when oh, I yeah. had tweet, but yeah, not, not that much now. I have a Twitter, I tweet. A lot of people don't pay attention to anything on there. And I'm just like, eh, it's for fun. Yeah. So yeah, I would say LinkedIn. I have a website, but it is very out of date and I need to update it. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on the, the show today. Um, be sure to give Meredith a follow. She is always providing valuable content on LinkedIn. Um, and usually a lot of her content is actionable too, which is what I love about it. Um, oh, her last you. few posts have been obviously grand slam. So good job, Meredith. Thanks. Yeah. Keep on keeping on. And I'm sure that we'll connect again soon.
Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me on the show today, Ashley. Thanks for listening to Unpopular Opinion. This episode was produced by Audience Ops, a content-led growth agency. If you're looking for help launching a podcast, Audience Ops handles all the legwork so you can focus on providing the subject matter expertise. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow Ashley's show on Spotify, Apple, or YouTube.